All right. We were in 47 last week. I read the chapter, but I want to read it again. And, uh, and then we'll kind of pick up where we left off last week. Genesis 47, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks, their herds, and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land. Because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them... Then make them chief herdsmen of my flocks. Then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their families. And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock, if the money is gone. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for their horses, their flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for their donkeys. And thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. And there is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to another end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priest had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, and for those of your household, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priest, only which which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they 
they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So here in Genesis 47, we see Joseph, his father Jacob, and his brothers come to Egypt. And they leave the land of promise and they come into Egypt. And remember, in chapter 46, God promised to Jacob, and he said, I will go with you into Egypt. I will be with you, and I will make you a great nation there. And so Jacob brings his household. The Bible tells us there were 70 people that came with Jacob and his entourage, and they come into the land of Egypt, and they're given the best of the land. And then in chapter 47, it finishes for us, this period of seven years of famine. So remember, Pharaoh had this dream, seven fat cows, seven fat ears, then seven lean cows and seven lean ears. And Joseph was brought out of prison and he interpreted the dream and he told Pharaoh, he said, this is, a, this is of God and God is showing you that there's going to be seven years of plenty and followed by that will be seven years of famine. And you must prepare the land because the famine will, will cover the land. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in command of all Egypt. And Pharaoh gives this authority to Joseph. And Joseph prepares Egypt for the famine to come. And chapter 47 sees us finish out those seven years of famine. And we see that it chronicles the last of those years when the people would come year by year to Joseph. And so they came to Joseph and they said, we have no more money. And Joseph said, then bring your livestock. And they bring their livestock in exchange for their livestock. He gives them grain. And the next year they come and they said, we have no livestock. We have no money. We have nothing left but our bodies in our land. And Joseph says, sell me your land and your bodies. And so your land and your bodies, you and your land will become servants of Pharaoh. And this is what happens. And Joseph institutes this law in that is, uh, Egypt, all of Egypt will give 20% of their increase. 20% of the harvest will go back to Pharaoh Pharaoh takes one-fifth, and they get to keep four-fifths. And so there are a lot of pictures uh, that we see presented here uh, in the Scripture, gospel pictures. So remember, Jacob and his household is called out of the land of Canaan and into the land of Egypt. And we see this chronicled throughout the Scriptures where God calls us out of one land and into another or we could say it like this, God calls us out of one life and into the life of another. God calls us out of the world and he calls us into the kingdom. God calls us out of ourself and he calls us into Christ. So God calls his children out of one land and into another. And we see this picture of Joseph who is a type of Christ, who has come literally from the dead, and raised up to this position. So Christ came. He was rejected by his brethren. He was rejected. He was basically sold away. He was crucified. He was buried. They thought that they had put him away and were done with him. Paul even writes in his letter to the Corinthians, had the rulers of this world known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
And so we see in Joseph this picture of Christ where Joseph is literally raised up seemingly from the dead and he's elevated to this place of ultimate authority. Christ comes to his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and preach the gospel. That is not a suggestion, church. That is a command that the Bible gives to us. We are commanded to go and to preach the gospel. We are commanded to go and to make known the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a suggestion. And so much of the church lives as though that is a suggestion, but it is a commandment that God gives us that our very life is to be a witness to the gospel and the glory of God, the righteousness and the holiness of God. And so we see this picture where Joseph is ruling over Egypt, and he, he finally says to the people, you have nothing left except your bodies and your land, then come to me, and your bodies and your land will become servants to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh came to possess all the money, all the land, all the people, all the possessions, all the livestock, it all belonged to Pharaoh. This is what Joseph instituted in Egypt. And you say, well, why, why, would, why is this picture here? Because this picture is for us how we come to Christ. We come to Christ absolutely desperate. We live apart from Christ in a condition of ultimate famine and desolation. We have no hope of life apart from Christ. And when we come to Christ and we are made his, we lose ownership of ourselves. We are not our own, but we belong to Jesus. This was true for all of those who came to Joseph in Egypt. It is true for all who come to Christ. When we are redeemed by Christ, we are bought with the price. We're no longer our own. We belong to Jesus totally and completely. Now, this is true whether you realize it or not. It's true whether you like it or not. So Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body belongs to God. This is another reason why abortion is such an abomination and such a horrible sin. Because we are taking our bodies and saying they belong to us and we have the right to do what we want with them, not only with our own bodies, but with the life, with the very body that lives on the inside of that mother's womb. Do you realize, church, that the most unsafe place for a baby to live on planet earth is inside of her mother's womb? Four and a half million babies every month are slaughtered through abortion. If, we, if there was one nation, if there was a continent on this earth where four and a half million babies were murdered every month, the world would be up in arms. Yet inside of a mother's womb on planet earth is the most unsafe place for a baby to reside. It should not be that way. It should not. That is something, that is a reality that somehow has escaped us. And I understand it escapes us because nobody wants to talk about the real numbers. Because nobody wants to talk about this because it's too controversial. Well, that's a, that's, that's a personal choice. We shouldn't talk about that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't mention that. That's certainly not a subject to be talked about in church. I've had people tell me that before. You shouldn't be talking about that in church, Pastor. Listen, if we're not going to talk about the murder of four and a half million babies a month in church, then where are we going to talk about it? 
If we're not going to talk about the sanctity of life, of all human life in church, then where on God's green earth are we going to talk about it? They're certainly not going to talk about it on CNN. They're certainly not going to talk about it on MSNBC. They're not going to talk about it on your talk shows. They're not going to talk about it in the way that it needs to be talked about. We think the gospel is just to go out and tell people Jesus loves you and and what you do with your life is okay. God really doesn't care. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God absolutely cares what you do with your life because God cares about you. And if you think what you do with your life is your own personal choice and, and you're free to do what you want, and God is obligated to forgive you when it's all said and done because he is love, then you've misunderstood the gospel. You've misunderstood who God is. You've misunderstood why you were created and put on this planet. You are not created and put on this planet so that you could do what you want to do. So that you could live your life the way you want to live your life and, and make life good and convenient for you. And I'm, I'm talking about all kinds of things. I mean, all kinds of things. We do that with our lives, with all sorts of things. We read the Bible. We just read the scripture that says our life is not our own. And we believe that because it's in the Bible. But we don't really believe that because that's not how we really live our life. So we kind of pick and choose. Some things are more socially acceptable than others. You know, we, we want to say certain sins are socially unacceptable, and we're good with picking on those. But then we have other sins that are more socially acceptable, and we just kind of want to wink at those. But that's, that's not what God does. So, well, you know, Pastor Jeff... I get drunk every so often. It's no big deal. You know, drinking is not a sin. Alcohol is not a sin. Being a drunkard's a sin. Or people say, someone asked me a few, few months ago, they said, Pastor Jeff, what do you think about marijuana? I said, I don't think much about it. They said, well, you know, do you think it's wrong to smoke marijuana? Because, you know, it is an herb. God made it. I said, yeah, it's wrong because it's illegal. But it's not illegal in Colorado. Well, we don't live in Colorado. We live in Texas. And in Texas, it's illegal. So I think it's a problem. And I don't think it's one of those things that you just sweep under the rug and say, well, you know, it's no, it's not really a big deal. See, at what point are we going to pick and choose and, you know, well, this isn't a big deal, but this is a big deal. Do you belong to Jesus or do you not belong to Jesus? Are you his or are you not his? What are you willing to justify? What are you willing to fudge on? What are you willing? And I'm not a legalist. Please, if any of you guys know me, I am not a legalist. in any way, shape, or form. And I've got my own issues where I know what the Scripture says, but in practice, I'm struggling too with God really owning me. We all struggle with that. But here's the reality. We've got to come to grips with something. We've got to come to grips with the truth. To belong to Jesus is to be a slave of God. We don't like that word slave, but do you know that there's more slavery on planet Earth today than there ever has been in human history? There are more people enslaved on planet Earth today than there ever has been in human history. I'm talking about physical slavery Let's talk about spiritual slavery. The Bible says that you are slaves to sin. When we're born, we're born into slavery. We're slaves to sin. 
Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 20. For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God. Did you catch that, church? Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of God. You, you didn't stop being a slave, you just changed masters. The Bible says when you're born in your natural birth, sin is your master. You're a slave to sin, but when you're born again, that's what it means to be set free. You're set free when you're born again of the Spirit of God. And when you're born again, the Bible doesn't say you become free, you're no longer a slave. It says you change masters, and God is now the one you are enslaved to. I didn't write the Bible. God wrote it, okay? So don't get mad at me. Now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. The Jews became indignant with Jesus. And the Jews says, we are enslaved to no one. We are not, of course, they lived 400. We're reading the story of Joseph. And Genesis 47 introduces us. This is the beginning of their slavery. Seventy people go into Egypt and they become a great nation. How did God make them a great nation? He made them a nation of slaves. When they left Egypt 400 years later, they, they left millions of slaves. That's how they walked out of Egypt. They were slaves. They had been slaves in Egypt. And now you come, you fast forward to the New Testament, you fast forward to Jesus, and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he, 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 and he makes this comment to them, and they said, we are, we're not slaves to anyone. We're free men. And they became indignant with Jesus. But here's the reality. And this is the reality Paul paints for us. This is the reality Paul lays out in black and white for us in his letter. Recorded for us. We're all slaves to someone and something. The question is, what and who? Until you are born again, you are a slave to sin. When you are born again, you become a slave to God. That's what the Bible says. But here's the good news. Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, the end everlasting life. You better be glad you don't belong to yourself. You better be glad that you are not your own. You really don't want to be your own. Because if you are still your own, if you still claim ownership of your life, if you're living your life as though you are the Lord and you are the master of yourself, the fruit and the end thereof is not a good thing. It's not everlasting life. It's eternal death. So the picture of Joseph extracting all the money, all the livestock, all the possessions, and all the land, and even their very lives in exchange for their salvation, pictures how we must come to Christ. We come in the most vulnerable state of, of desperation, desperate for life and desperate for salvation. And the choice of the people in Egypt was life or death. The thing that we don't realize because we live in this world that where the issues of life and death are so camouflaged that we don't see them any longer as life and death. See, abortion's not an issue of life or death, it's an issue of choice. Only problem is that little baby in the womb has no choice as to whether he or she's going to live. So we camouflage an issue of life and death, and we call it an issue of choice and freedom. 
or you pick any other sin you want to. You pick the sin, any sin. And, and we camouflage these things. We dress these things up, and they're no longer issues of life and death. They're issues of freedom. They're issues of choice. They're issues of convenience. They're issues of personal preference. That is humanity deceiving itself into believing something that is not true. Because we've got to go back to this scripture right here. And this scripture takes everything down, it strips away all the facade, it strips away all the camouflage, it, it strips away all the paint and all the, the stuff we cover things up with. It strips it all down to what's foundational And it says, no, the real issues that we're dealing with, when we deal with issues of sin, we're dealing with issues of life and death. And for the people in Egypt, this is what it became for them. They said, what good is it us to have our land? What good is it for us to even have our freedom if all we're going to do is die? We might as well give ourselves and our lands to be slaves to Pharaoh if we can live. It was that obvious for them, but it, it is not that obvious for us. You know why it's not that obvious for us? Because here is what our enemy is most masterful at. The, the devil, we want to think the devil is some mean, scary uh, entity that's going to come to us with, you know, looking horrible. We watch these stupid horror movies and these horror flicks and we get scared of the devil. The devil is never going to come to you looking like some creature out of a horror flick that scared you. The Bible is very clear. He comes to you as an angel of light. He's not going to look scary. He's going to look exactly the opposite. And that's why we fall prey to this deception and we think these things that are really life and death issues aren't really life and death issues. They're just issues of preference or issues of choice or issues of personal liberty or their women's issues or men's issues or gender issues or no they're not they're issues of life and death it's just that our enemy is so good at deception and we're so good we're so easily deceived because we want to believe we want our flesh wants to do what flesh wants to do flesh wants to rebel against god Paul writes this in his letter to the Romans. He said, listen, the carnal mind is enmity. The flesh is enmity against God. Your flesh and your spirit, they are in opposition to one another. They're in opposition to one another. Your flesh is fighting your spirit. God is... Not a man that he should lie. Jesus said, The Father in heaven is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That, that's not the type of music we sing, or whether we dance or not dance, raise our hands or not raise our hands, have tambourines or no, have tambourines. Now, to worship God in spirit and in truth. It goes to an issue of flesh or spirit. You can't worship God in the flesh. You have to worship God in the spirit. What does that mean? That means you've got to become a spiritual being. How do you become a spiritual being? How do you come to possess a spiritual life? Not spiritual death, but spiritual life. You have to be born again of the Spirit. And when you're born again of the Spirit, the Bible says you've been set free from sin. And once you've been set free from sin, you're no longer a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to God in holiness whose fruit ends in everlasting life. Now, born of the Spirit, you become a slave to God. You're not free. You're free from sin, but you're not free. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? You're not free to just go out and do what you want. 
however you want and call it good. You're free from sin. But you're not free from God. You belong to God. I will. You will. The whole world will give an account to God. We will. For those who have trusted in Jesus, we have said, God, I have no hope. I have no righteousness to bring to you. I have no holiness to bring to you. I have nothing I can bring to you that is of any merit. The best that I can do is bring myself in my sinfulness and give myself to you and say, take me, God, because this is all I have. And God, in His grace, sets me free from sin and makes me a slave to Him in holiness whose fruit ends in everlasting life. That's a pretty good deal, church. That's a pretty good exchange that you exchange your sinful life for the life of the Son of God, His holiness, His righteousness. But you need to understand that when you make that exchange, that doesn't mean you are free to live your life however you want to. That means you belong to Him, lock, stock, and barrel. Your your body belongs to Jesus. Your life is His. So Jesus calls us to lose all in order to gain all. God gives to us in Christ true riches. So when Jesus and his disciples are together and the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him the last five of the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I've done all of these since my youth. Jesus said, one thing you lack. He said, go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. The Bible says that he was very sad because he had great possessions and he went away from Jesus. Then Jesus says, as the the man is going away, he says, They were greatly astonished. Jesus says, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said, children, how hard it is for those to trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus said, they were all astonished. How can any man be saved? And he said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then he says this, Peter actually says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the, in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. Now, this isn't a promise of material prosperity. This is a promise of provision, abundant provision in all things. That what Jesus promises us is that when we come to him and we sell all, basically, we give all to to become his, we are not losing we are gaining. The, even the people in Egypt did not see it in any way that they had lost anything. They saw that they had gained. And so they said, they even said, look, you've, you've shown us favor. Verse 25, so they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. They didn't see themselves as losing anything because their lives were saved. 
their physical lives were saved. And they were grateful to become the slaves of Pharaoh if it meant that their lives would be saved. Do you know that Jesus has saved much more than your physical life? He has saved your spiritual life. He has saved you not just for a lifetime. He has saved you for eternity. Do you see that what Jesus gives to you is so much greater than what Joseph gave to the people of Egypt. Yet the people of Egypt were so thankful that Joseph had given them life, even though it cost them everything. Can we not see that what Jesus has given us is so much greater than any measure of physical life or physical possessions or physical freedom that we think we have? But he has given to us his very life. He has imparted to us his eternal life. So they said, this is what the Egyptians said in verse 19. Look at, look at Genesis 47 verse 19. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. What a beautiful picture of Christ, who is the promised seed revealed to us throughout the scripture. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. Christ is the living word. He is the seed that is the source of life and fruitfulness that is implanted in our hearts to make manifest the fruit of God's spirit through the ground of our lives. You are God's field, Paul says. The seed's been implanted in you, not so that the ground can manifest, so that the seed can make manifest the life that's inherent in the seed. That life is the life of Christ. The life that needs to be seen by the world is not your life. It's the life of Christ in you. That doesn't mean you don't have a life and you don't have an identity. But what it does mean is that ultimately, in God's economy, you are known only because of Christ. The Father doesn't know you any other way. The Father will have no relationship with you any other way until you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, He has no relationship with you. You are separated from Him. There is a gulf of sin separating you from the Father that you cannot bridge. Only Christ can bridge that gap. And when He bridges that gap and you are born again, and you are brought into the Father, the Father knows you because you are in the Son. And this is why we are commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to sow the seed of God's Word, which is the gospel, liberally and without prejudice to every creature. This is what Mark says in his gospel, preach to every creature. In Matthew 13, we have the parable of the seed and the sower recorded for us. And in that parable, it tells us that the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed the seed, it fell on various types of ground. And in Matthew 13, 19, it tells us how the seed is received. Look at verse 19. It says, when anyone, this is, this is what Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. You've heard that old saying, Go out and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. No, it's absolutely necessary that you use words. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, just like God saw it necessary to use words when he created the creation. And God said, let there be light. It didn't say God thought light and light was. It didn't say God modeled light and light was. It says God spoke light into being. There is a reason why God has created. Do you know that God created words? I'm speaking the English language to you today. Your Bible is written in English. Maybe it's written in Spanish. I've got a Korean Bible in my office there. Do you know God created words? God created language. God gave expression. Why do you think God went to the trouble to create words and create an expression we call language? And he created vocal cords that create sounds in those particular different types of sounds enables us to hear and understand what's being said. You realize God did that, right? You know why? Because God, before creation, knew that he would use words to proclaim his gospel. He spoke light into your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, and light came out of your heart. Just like he spoke light into the creation, and there was light. God ordained words to be spoken, to be heard. He gave us the gospel in the form of words, and men need to hear the word of the gospel. And in their hearing, they will be saved. Listen to the Apostle Paul. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they are not all, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Go out and preach the gospel and absolutely use words. Use the right ones. Use the word of God. The gospel is God's word. It was given that it may be proclaimed in the hearing of men everywhere in every setting imaginable, not the least of which is the assembly of the saints of God, his church. God, Christ is the promised seed and he is our life. His word continually implanted in the ground of our heart brings forth a harvest of righteous fruit by the power of his life-giving spirit. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Do we see how desperate we are for the seed? The Egyptians could see how desperate they were to receive that seed, and they sold their very lives to receive it. Do you see how desperate you are for Christ. Are you willing to give everything to receive him? Are you willing to let go of everything in order to receive him? That's what he calls you to do. Take up your cross is a call to leave everything and gain him. Come to the cross and lose your life that you may gain Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Christ is our life, and without him we can do nothing, we are nothing, we have no hope. But with Christ, God has freely given us all things. Give us seed, O God, and save us by the power 
of your gospel and make us a fruitful land. Ultimately, seed is given and seed is planted that there will be a harvest. And with the seed comes the expectation of fruitfulness and harvest. Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. A farmer plants seed in the ground with the expectation that there will be a harvest to fruitfulness. The end of the famine came. Joseph gave them seed. He said, plant this seed. And when the harvest comes, when the increase comes, one-fifth of it goes back to Pharaoh. But how much of it belonged to Pharaoh? It all belonged to Pharaoh. God, throughout His Word, says the tithe belongs to me, says the Lord. A tithe means 10%. We have this mistaken thought that God owns 10% and we get the 90. No, God owns 100%. He only legalistically requires 10%, but the standard in the New Testament is to live your life in a way that you understand that it all belongs to Him. That you're not trying to find out how cheap you can get by with. How little do I have to give to God and still be in His good grace? That's not the picture we see in the Scripture. The picture we see in the Scripture is that they gave freely. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. How freely did God give to you? He gave so freely that He did not withhold His only begotten Son, but gave Him up into the hands of despicably sinful men to die the most horrible and shameful death imaginable. God did that. He freely did that for you and for me. What are we going to withhold from God? What do we want to hold back and keep from God in light of what God has given so freely for us? There should be nothing. What could you possibly hold on to in and of yourself that is worth more than what God has given to you in His Son There is nothing. Why do we settle for lesser things, for things that are so shallow, so material, so worthless that we would would give up eternal life for things that are meaningless? Why would we do that? We do that because we've bought into a deception because we have a deceiver, we have an enemy who's very good at deceiving. And I want to challenge you, church, to look beyond the camouflage, to look beyond the deception, the way our culture and the way the world wants to dress up issues and dress up things and make them appear to be one thing when in reality the Bible defines them clearly as another. Don't by the lie that what the Bible calls life and death issues, and I'm talking about the very issues of your life, who do you belong to? If you think you belong to yourself, I want to challenge that thought. And I want to challenge you to go to the Scripture and read with an open mind and read and ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten your eyes and to enlighten your understanding, to break the hardness of your heart and the blindness of your eyes, to see that you are not your own, that you don't belong to yourself, that you don't have any rights. You belong to God. You've become His slave in Jesus Christ. The rights we have, we have by the grace of God. I have a right to preach this gospel as unpopular as it may be. I have the right to do that in America as an American by the grace of God. Next week, I might not have that right. Parts of the world today, they don't have that right. Whatever rights you have, you have by the grace of God. But the fact that you have rights by the grace of God doesn't mean that you belong to yourself. It just means God in His grace has allowed you some freedom. But you belong to Him. 
and all that you have and all that you are are his. And so I say with the Apostle Paul, so then glorify God in your bodies, in your hearts, in your minds. Glorify God. Let's stand, church. Father, you challenge us through the very words of your Son to take up our cross daily and follow you. And that call, that call and that command is a call to lay down everything. Lord, we can't carry the cross along with everything else we want to carry. Lord, carrying a cross means that we lay down our life. And that cross leads us to the end of ourself. Father, we know that this is impossible in and of ourselves. That Lord, but by the grace of God, the power of your resurrection life and spirit, the cross would only lead us to death. But Lord, when we are crucified with Christ, Lord, we may lose our lives We may simply switch masters and become slaves of God, but the fruit of that, the end of that, is holiness and everlasting life. That is impossible for man to gain on his own. You have made that possible for us in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would do the impossible, that you would change our hearts and change our minds that you would give us the grace to be faithful, to wash them with the water of your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive the seed of your word. As you have freely given Christ and as we have freely received him, let us freely give to you all glory, all honor. Let us feel your joy that is our strength. Let us feel it to your glory, we pray. Father, in Jesus' name, amen.